Guide to the Apocalypse. In our first season, you and I are uncovering what the archetype of the apocalypse has to teach us, particularly in these times of disruption, pain, and uncertainty. As we explore the psychological meaning, we're going to dive deep into your inner world so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. The world, as Conan Doyle once told us, is full of obvious things which nobody, by any chance, ever observes. To which, Urban Dictionary, a century and some change later, responds, No shit, Sherlock. We know. Except, I'm not always sure that we do. The warnings that you and I receive throughout our lives are only obvious in retrospect. Even when we are most on guard, our wariness tends to blind us more than enlighten us. We end up missing the tree for the forest. In our third episode of this season, The Warning, we're contemplating the obvious clues that we miss that prevent us from being able to read the signs of the times and inhibit us from being able to navigate uncharted territory. It is so goddamn it's the kind of hot that it's the kind of hot that turns metaphors into clichés. It's hot enough to fry an egg on the sidewalk, hotter than a blister bug in a pepper patch, hotter than noon on the 4th of July, hotter than Hades, aka HEW sticks, or really, most realistically, hotter than Satan's house cat lazily stretched out on the pavement in front of Satan's summer home. That cat just content to soak up every last ray of sunshine. So hot that the swimming pool is boiling, the ice cream truck is melting, and I am slowly disintegrating into sweat and tears. Tears that are more of a thought than an actuality. You probably wouldn't agree. You would probably tell me that 92 degrees Fahrenheit is a delightful temperature, something meant for days at the beach or to lounge by the pool, or best yet, to visit an ice cream parlor, soaking in those brief moments of cool air and the sweet smell of Freon. Before you finally leave, the door jingling in your wake, slammed awake by the sticky garment of heat and humidity ready to cloak you, as you take your ice cream sundae with you, a kind of consolation prize. Those of you who are sun worshippers, I'm sure, are thinking I'm being ridiculous. But I really think you should keep this in mind, because I think every fantasizing about this kind of moment should always be accompanied by the warning. This is not delightful. Rather, this kind of heat, it feels like being a tea bag in those first seconds of being steeped, like the heat is going to rip out your very essence, intent on flavoring some unknown god's wake-up call. In retrospect, I probably should have paid more attention to my phone's weather app. It was July, after all, and 
The thing is, though, who cares for distressing warnings, predicting discomfort when it's easier to just show up and pretend things aren't as bad as you'd worry they'd be? This is also why I rarely if ever have an umbrella when I need one. Back to the story, though. It's 92 degrees, and I am at an Incubus concert. I'm drinking a tall boy, I'm listening a little to the band, a little to the content of my own thoughts, and mostly, I'm honing my focus on the couple sitting next to me on a blanket that was some sort of red and black plaid. They were simultaneously super high, and also engaged in a conflict that maybe if you overheard it, you would just say, oh, that just sounds like a, a philosophical discussion that one has when they've been smoking a little bit more. I don't know, though. I could feel the tension radiating off them, just like I could feel like the waves of heat that make a pavement look wavy in your vision. And because I don't think we're actually going to get back to this couple, I do want to tell you here and now, I really think he had the better point. I thought he was right on in his accusations that she cared more for appearance than substance, and it hurt his feelings. Whether or not that was actually true for her, I don't know, because I don't know them. But I agreed with the basic construct, which I suppose makes me biased, but I really felt if it was an argument, he should have won. Today's story, though, doesn't start there. Really, I'll be damned if I could tell you where it starts. Maybe maybe I should tell you about the friend inviting me to this concert, and me being so thrilled I accepted, even though the only thing I know, or I guess knew, about Incubus was the theological definition of one. I could, I could tell you about how I came to know this friend, and how things would disintegrate my connection not only to her, but to the core group that connected me to her just a few weeks after when this story takes place. I could also tell you about the beliefs that I have long held. Beliefs that don't just feel like beliefs, but like core tenets in my bones. About how I am challenged in connecting with others. Even though most of that is only internally felt and not necessarily externally presented. But any one of those stories would be far too long and far too personal and are better suited for my own therapy hour. Instead, I'm wanting to tell you about how I drank a beer in her car right before the concert, enjoying the last remnants of air conditioning. I can't remember the brand of beer, just the feel of it in my hand. And that delight in breaking the rules, even though my internal system was starting to kick into overdrive. What if they catch us? What if the security officers employed by Jiffy Lube Live, who are probably not going to hassle me because I am a small white woman and have plenty of privilege. I was so scared I would get in trouble and go to concert jail, whatever that is. And yet I also... I also found it exciting, even though I know, really, it's not that thrilling. I remember thinking to myself, this is what teenagers do. I'm just 15 years late. And so we didn't get in trouble, and we joined the crowds, excited to listen to the musically crafted thoughts of others. I knew none of the bands. She had made me a mix playlist, which I had listened to on the drive to the concert. But I didn't know who any of these people were. And now I guess we're back to the beginning of where I started us, right? At least the story of this week 
The couple's arguing, the smell of skunk is laced with sweetness, I'm drinking the beer, and I'm taking sides in arguments that don't belong to me. And all of that is just prelude, really, to tell you about the warning of what was to come. The warning that I missed, that totally bypassed me as I stood up to go get a second tall boy during the second half of the concert, when Incubus finally had entered in, and the crowd... I don't know that they went wild, but they all started to move down the lawn closer to the stage. Maybe, maybe if I had stayed to dance and sing along with the crowd, to truthfully a song I'd never heard before and did not know the lyrics to, maybe if I had stayed, I would have taken in the message that that band play acting at demonizing was singing. The lyrics went something like this. Would a written invitation... Sign choose now or lose it all. Sedate your hesitation, or would it inflame and make you stall? You've been raised in limitation, but that glove never fit. I didn't hear it, though. I was off waiting in line, counting out my cash money. And by the time I came back, that couple had moved on somewhere else, and my friend, who befriended strangers easily, had drifted up front to join the crowd singing. And so I sat back down, and was content to stay still in that sticky breeze. I sipped my third beer, and really the second too many of my beers, and I pretended to listen to the music, a skill I honed long, long ago. Mostly, though, I just hummed along to the ramblings of my own internal dialogue. I can't really tell you what I was thinking about then. It's probably about friendship. Maybe about the responsibilities of relationship. Maybe about the promises that I, I wanted to fool myself into believing that I could make and keep. It's easier now, looking back and being able to pinpoint the reality of what would happen. And yet, I still wish I would have reflected about how the same old pattern was going to play out again, would have known it before it happened. That's the thing, though. Warnings are only clear in retrospect. Because in the end, I grew up naive. I've been overcompensating for it ever since. If this was a real-life sermon... This is the point of our talk where I would pivot to the text. I'd reference what had been read aloud by various congregational members who had been tugged into participating. I would have pointed out, perhaps in your bulletin, where the text would be outlined or reference how you could look it up yourself in the Bible sitting right in front of you. Then again, if this was a real-life sermon, it's pretty absurd to imagine anyone besides the fundamentalist and perhaps the Pentecostals choosing the book of Revelation as their core text. And if, by some odd stance, the more middle-of-the-road and left-leaning Christianity churches, preachers, had chosen to read from the book of Revelation and make it their core text, they most certainly would not have started off this whole thing with a goddamn It's not to say that clergy cannot swear like the most foul-mouthed motherfuckers you've ever met, but they don't generally do it while sermonizing. Yet, cursing aside, I, I think you guys know this and you've only been around a couple episodes, I really remain connected to Revelation. 
It's a core component of that Bible that I hid in my heart long ago. Back then, in childhood, adolescence, and even sitting on the lawn of Jiffy Lube Live, Revelation felt like a kind of house of mirrors. It distorted my understanding of myself and the world, while promising me that it saw me with more clarity than any other text, person, or being. It felt the most important. Like it contained the secrets of how to survive the war that I thought was coming. I didn't know that it was already living inside me. And it was revelation that put the final nail in the coffin of being able to read the Bible literally. It's the closest thing the New Testament has to a psychedelic trip. And in it, linearity is quickly discarded as a meaningless construct. When you read Revelation, you kind of have this sense that it's all happening at once. Not like a symphony. It's more like when jazz wanders away from the melody, or the jam band suddenly is just completely disharmonious, and you never know if they're ever going to get their shit back together to sound something more like a song. Maybe, though, you haven't read the book of Revelation. Many people have not. You probably know the popular constructs, though, like the Antichrist or the four horsemen bringing destruction, the scariest which, of course, is the pale horse of death. It's kind of like the one Ara Area. I never know how to say her name. Kind of like the one that she wrote, though, in that very disappointing second-to-last episode of Game of Thrones. Really, truly, that last season was not very good. Back to Revelation, though, maybe maybe you've even seen, whether you realize it or not, this idea, this construct of the descent of the divine. Typically, this is depicted in movies as like an asteroid, but occasionally something like alien invasion. In Revelation, the image is bowls, bowls of like toxicity being poured over the earth, and then monsters who are being unleashed from the center dismantling everything inside and out and outside and in. It's deconstruction on a universal scale. Oh, and of course, of course you've heard of Armageddon. If not the actual battleground, then the plot hole heavy movie starting pre-Batman Ben Affleck and post-Demi Moore Bruce Willis. The latter, who is in charge, strangely, of leading a band of deep-sea oil drillers on a course to save the world from blowing up by blowing something else up. Honestly, though, I don't want to talk to you about how Deep Impact was clearly the superior end of the world movie of 1998. At least not right now. If you really want to, send me an email and we will talk about it endlessly, probably not endlessly, but I definitely have five outlined reasons prepared to tell you why it was not only more scientifically accurate, but also profoundly better acted and directed. All of that, though, is prelude. All of that is distraction. Maybe all of that is me stalling from getting to these warnings, to getting to the title track of this episode, which is, today I'm wanting to talk to you about the seven warnings that John the Dreamer offered before he lost himself in the fantastical. And these warnings have every bit as much to do with you as they do with me. And not just you and me. But these seven churches and seven cities that seem to represent seven ways to defend against or to embrace the dismantling of apocalypse. 
it's easy to lose track. It's easy, I think, to have a podcast on in the background and just half-heartedly listen like I did at that Incubus concert. But I, I want to invite you to listen carefully today and consider which of these seven places you and your psyche reside. And what warning beckons to you, what warning perhaps you need to listen most carefully to. And true story, I will tell you, it's likely the one you will be most tempted to ignore, the one where you find your mind wandering about what you're going to have for lunch or if you need to go switch over the laundry. So to begin, our first place of the psyche is Ephesus. And if you are an Ephesian, then you likely learned from a very young age that all others come first, that you are meant to serve others before you even begin to consider what you yourself might need. Those in power may have accused you of not loving enough, being enough, much like the divine accuses Ephesus of leaving behind their first love. At your best, though, you embody the heroic. You're Harry standing on the edge of the forest to confront Voldemort. You're Charlotte spinning her web to save her friend from the slaughterhouse. You're Walder holding the door against the White Walkers. At your worst, you are the self-righteous martyr, convinced that no one ever appreciates what you have to offer. No offer of gratitude will ever be enough. You're deeply deeply hungry heart. You're desperate for love, and if you can't have that, you'll settle for a close facsimile. You defend, and your most chosen, beloved way of defending is to sacrifice yourself as a way to avoid all intimacy. We can't have a relationship with a martyr. It's an archetype, it's a vision, it's it's a construct, it's not a person. Perhaps to put your defense a different way, it means that you find your only value in what you do for others, not for who you are. And underneath that, the secret desire of your heart, the longing, is to be loved without reserve, to be loved just as you are, not what you do. You endure, not just patiently, but sometimes it feels hopelessly, longing to hear the others say to you, you, not what you do, is what I want. And so the warning comes. The warning urges you to acknowledge your anger, your resentment, and unweave it from your soul. Stop doing so goddamn much, and choose instead the harder path, going deep down into your vulnerability, and face that nameless shame. The shame that tells you that you're a worthless piece of shit that's wholly unlovable. I want you to look underneath shame's bravado, underneath to your beautifully battered heart. Your heart that's been waiting for you to see the lie shame has been peddling for your protection. It's not that you are unlovable. It's that you're scared to let others love you without pretending that you earned it. If you can heed the warning, the promise then will call to you to return to the love for you yourself. That love that you abandoned at the beginning of all of this. Love that feels more like paradise and less like a factory when you really, truly love yourself. Apocalypse will dismantle you by returning you to a place of dependence on others. Not so you become an infantile being in relationship, 
but so you can remember the joy of receiving just as much as you joy in giving. Probably should have warned you before we started talking about these warnings as I will mispronounce most of the churches. And Smyrna feels so funny to say in my mouth, but if you inhabit Smyrna, then you avoid pain like the plague, so you wouldn't be trying to pronounce things that you didn't know how to pronounce. Also, avoiding pain like the plague is not really a great metaphor anymore because it turns out we do not avoid the plague. I learned that from memes on the internet, you young ones. I'm trying to catch up. And I'm doing actually exactly what people from Smyrna do. Those who live there, avoid, avoid, avoid. Avoid through charm, through their engaging style. They can waltz into a bar 20 minutes before closing and become the night's overall favorite. You're quick-witted. You know how to engage anybody in conversation, and you can pivot from topic to topic with ease. People only think they know you. You know underneath it all that you're just flying from one identity to another, ready to try the next thing and the next and the next. Satisfaction is a thirst you can never slake, no matter how many gin and tonics others buy for you. At your worst, you're unable to say no, not so much to others, but to yourself. You become poor, if not financially, then certainly in time and energy. Though, I will admit, you still manage to do more in a single day than I could ever even conceive of putting on a to-do list in a day. You use your charm not just as defense, but as weapon. You cover for how you run so far anytime you get close. Closeness seems synonymous with pain, and you are a virtuoso in avoiding pain. You withdraw inside casual conversation and pivot to the other, interested, pretending to be curious about them anytime things come too close to your tenderness. The secret desire of your heart beats quietly. You have to slow down to really hear it. It longs to feel the tug of someone's hand pulling you back with ease and with love, smiling at you not just with their mouth but with their eyes, and soothing that frantic spin inside. You long for the person whose gaze you can meet again and again, no matter where you flit off to. The warning urges you, slow the fuck down. Your anxiety has spun you up into imagining death and destruction at the merest hint of intimacy. Happiness is waiting for you. If you would only slow down and experience these quiet moments when you don't use your quick and brilliant mind to distract from the joy that is waiting for you to hold on to it. Take a deep breath. And now another. And see now, the pain isn't as bad as you imagined. Take another deep breath and at least one more. The more you breathe, the more you slow down. The more you discover the secret that's been hiding in every inhalation. You can trust yourself. And the joy in every exhalation, you can depend on others. And so if you heed the warning, the promise will beckon like a wild new adventure. You will be taken care of. You won't be left alone in pain. 
If only you'd slow down long enough to discover that community is not only waiting, it's calling you to come just as you are. The apocalypse longs to dismantle your avoidance by bringing you straight up to the edge of your need, particularly for others, but even more so for others to really know you. And so now we move on to our next church, Pergamon. If you inhabit Pergamon, which I actually don't know if that's how we're supposed to pronounce it, but it's how we're going to pronounce it today. If that is where you live, then you hide your fear under a formidable intelligence. You're terrified of being incompetent more than I am terrified of mispronouncing every which word that rattles around in my brain. And you sometimes hesitantly, very hesitantly, admit to maybe occasionally, potentially, experiencing imposter syndrome. Maybe, you don't know, possibly. All of which is just code for feeling useless, helpless, and incapable in the face of the unknown. You hoard knowledge like it's being discontinued. And no matter how much knowledge you gather, you're faced with the temptation consistently to choose ignorance rather than pay the cost of wisdom. Because wisdom, wisdom isn't knowledge. It's experience distilled. It's pain brought up and faced and seen. It costs a lot. And you defend against it. You defend against wisdom by choosing intelligence, rather, really a warped version of it. You'd rather rationalize fallacies than admit your heartbreak. And your heartbreak, when it really breaks open, it reveals the secrets of your desire, which is to soak in the gaze of the one who sees underneath your many performances to the very core of who you are, who doesn't need to know your facts and figures. I just need to be with you. So the warning stipulates, stop acting like you're the architect in the matrix. That's just a grandiose delusion that lies to you. You do not and cannot hold all the answers to all the questions and be prepared for every possible outcome. You must sacrifice your idol god of knowledge so you can understand and meet your actual needs. And when you can heed the warning, the promise will remind you that when you conquer what your intelligence obscures, you will discover a hidden feast inside, which will feed not only your starved heart, but your endlessly curious mind. Apocalypse, if you let it, if you can stay in the unknowing, it will dismantle that fear of not knowing, and it will introduce you to the realm of intuition and feeling teaching you how to converse with the wild unknown inside of you. If you inhabit Thyatira, you intuited from an early age that keeping the peace was the only way to survive. You learned to be in the middle, the middle of arguments, the middle of relationships, the middle of violence. And while the middle is familiar, it often was not safe. But the battlefield, it feels like home. And you have learned to simultaneously triage wounded egos and shattered hearts while brokering detente after detente. You'll buy peace at any price, and you are more than willing to trade bits of your soul as collateral, thinking them less valuable than the reconciliation of others. 
The illusion of connection and stability lures you. It lures you into sacrificing your own sense of self again and again, until all that's left is a peacekeeper's world wariness. Your defense is a pretty common one. It's something we call in therapy land people-pleasing. But that really is too mild of a word for what you do. It's not merely pleasing others. It's the ability to reconcile the most bitter of enemies in a way where everyone feels like they've won. You endear yourself to strangers by understanding them more than perhaps they even understand themselves. And yet, you are profoundly astute, chameleon, shifting relationally, blending into every background, being who they want need you to be. Avoiding being yourself. And that secret desire of your heart doesn't feel so appealing. It feels more like an anxiety attack, which you have learned astutely to ignore. That desire, it calls for you to assert yourself, to discover and proclaim your opinions without being decimated by the others, to be intensely alive, connected while beautifully separate feels impossible. It's a piece you could never broker. The warning contends with you, though. It says you must stand up for yourself. You must pick up your weapons. You must give up your tolerance. You've sought peace by decimating your passion, and you've got to wake up to the deception that you are peddling to yourself, falsely promising to yourself that there could ever be peace without conflict. Instead, you need to embrace the deep wisdom and experience of being contrary, challenging the other, and owning your own opinions and preferences and desires. When you can choose authenticity, not slow self-destruction by the means of compromise, you may actually discover a peace that is more than just external. It lives within you. And when you can do that, the promise asserts that your presence will matter. Who you are in all your many internal conflicts, it matters. And you will find inner peace if you're willing to risk external conflict. Apocalypse will approach you, seemingly diplomatically, but it will dismantle your neutrality and remind you that authenticity, particularly when it leads to conflict, is the key to inner peace. If you inhabit Sardis, then you absolutely positively fear that you have no personal significance. You're just an actor in a play. You serve as a sidekick in other people's heroic turns. You're never the star of the show. You're only a convenient plot device. Your identity changes with the seasons, which makes relationships quite challenging. Particularly your relationship with yourself. Self-knowledge for you is always based on what you feel in the moment. But feelings alone are not a stable foundation for self-identity. When you look outside yourself, the comparisons are wildly polarized. They are either all good or all bad. The binary oppresses you, but fluidity is difficult to discover. Never mind create. You are well defended. And you're well defended because you choose role-playing as your core tenant. You lose yourself in other ways of being, none of which is wholly authentic to you. And yet, you're so focused on giving others what they want. 
you never really consider what you may really need. You never really know who you are because you're so accustomed to wearing the mask. The secret desire of your heart, it, it tickles on the edges of your mind. It's like hearing a whisper off stage. It speaks to you. It asks you, do I matter? Do I really, really matter? Not just on stage, but in all my backstage mess and drama. Will I matter to another? The warning will intone. Your feelings are not facts, nor are they the whole of you. They're the wind in your sails, but you, my friend, are the boat. Your true self isn't hiding. It's waiting. It's waiting inside of you like a thief in the night, ready to surprise you with the unchangeability of the you that is cloaked underneath your greatest performances. The you is all. And if you can find a way to integrate the parts, you will be not the greatest actor or greatest performer of your generation. You will be a truly, fascinatingly whole human. The promise will beckon. You are seen. You are seen for who and what you are and how you are consistently growing and evolving. You are loved. So draw close and I will call you by your name. Oh, my beloved child, slowly finding your way to psychic adulthood. It's okay to go slow, but don't stall out in your fantasies of who you wish you were. Cherish your growing and embrace your limitations. Apocalypse will gently dismantle you, stripping off all the stage makeup and carefully constructed relational artifice. And it will reveal to you and to us, the vulnerable beauty underneath. If you inhabit Philadelphia of the first century CE, not Philly PA, then you, my friend, are cursed with the disease of perfectionism. Oh, I know you wouldn't typically call it that. You prefer to think of it as strong moral fortitude or keen artistic sensibility. You're a reformer. You advocate for change that matches your revered ideals. While you recognize, maybe better than most, comfort will kill you. And so you have become the ultimate stoic. You allow dogma instead of your heart to rule your life. And the levy eventually will not be able to hold back the river of reality. Because reality demands balance and integrity. And if you don't have that, it eventually transmutes into hypocrisy. Your most beloved chosen defense is asserting the moral high ground. You remain stagnant in a muddy mix of fear of making mistakes and the rigid adherence to the rules and drowning in inflexible impatience. Underneath that, though, you're scared if you go too deeply inside. You'll discover some core part of you is defective and corrupt. Your heart, your heart is accustomed to having the appearance of being on the stage. People call you a bleeding heart, but really, underneath it, your real heart, not just the play acting thing you put on display, it's to change the world. And even more than that, to change you. Because in doing so, you want others to see the light inside of you. 
You want to direct your love for your neighbors like a lighthouse's beam, being a trusted guide in stormy times. You long to be loved and for those who love you to have your back as you move forward to make change. The warning, the warning is sharp. Power is overrated. You're so focused on changing the world, you neglect yourself. Hypocrisy will haunt you unless you take the core risk and embrace your own limitations. Beware of your self-righteousness. Offense is toxic if it's left too long. You are in danger of becoming what you work yourself to the bone to dismantle. The promise, the promise attempts to soothe. It says it's okay to make mistakes. You're so cruel to yourself. You're so cruel to others. There's integrity in kindness. There's value in embracing compassion, not only for the other, but for yourself. Goodness is only good when love accompanies it. If you're willing to take the risk, apocalypse will dismantle you by shining a light on your hypocrisy. Not to shame you, but to reveal the flawed beauty of humanity and to deepen your love not only for the other, but for yourself. And so we now come to our seventh church. And if you inhabit Laodicea, then you are the ultimate achiever. Laodiceans define, hashtag committed, hashtag dedicated, hashtag goals. They're the influencers of the first as well as the 21st century. You're one of the stars of humanity. And boy, do you know it. Except stars have plenty of shadow. Or rather, while stars often embody the best and the most beautiful of humanity, they also reveal the flaws of a society, of a culture, of a family. Underneath all of your power, you fear being a nobody. You long to feel valuable and worthwhile, all the while fearing that underneath all of your artifice, you're just a cubic zirconian in a world of conflict-free diamonds. All that glitters isn't gold, and you're keenly aware that your sparkling personality is your most valuable asset. Out of all the churches, Laodicea breaks my heart the most. I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, I have theories, but they always have more to do with me than with them. John says that God found them neither hot nor cold, and would spit them out of his mouth. Somehow, for the 13-year-old me reading the Bible for herself for the first time around, there was just nothing worse than God hating you so much that he'd do a scriptural spit take. It seemed hateful then, and truthfully, it still does. I worry more than I want to tell you that I might be one of the Laodiceans, believing myself to be prosperous and wholly independent while I am poor, naked, and pitiable. A Tanya Harding among a world of Nancy Kerrigans. Or for non-1990s ice skating fans, it's like a scrapper facing insurmountable odds. And so, perhaps if this is where you reside, and perhaps this is also where I reside, you may be very aware that our chosen defense is the carefully crafted veneer of self. We have found ways to relationally seduce our way to success. And yet, the secret desire of our hearts thumps to us, it calls to us, it is a steady rhythm, asking to be loved 
in all of your messiness. And the morning like the dude abides. We must choose authenticity over desperate duplicity. If you're willing to risk owning your own feelings and uncovering your identity, you will discover worth beyond value. The promise whispers if you strain to hear, I see you, I love you, for you, not who you script yourself to be. And if we're brave and embrace our vulnerability, apocalypse will dismantle the illusion of us. So we can embrace reality for not only our limitations, but our strengths. And so we reach the end. Maybe like me, whenever I read Revelation, you're getting the warnings all mixed up. Who needs to work on authenticity? And who is longing for intimacy? All of them, or was it just Sardis and Ephesus? I just can't remember. I think, though, that maybe the warning remains at its core the same, no matter which church you identify with. It intones, the apocalypse comes like a thief in the night. You won't know what hour it will come. So for the love of all that's good and holy, stay awake. Or maybe that's not really quite right. Maybe this journey into the Bible was just all my own defense. Maybe I'm not Laodicea, maybe I'm just Jen. And my own desire to resist the warning given back to me on the lawn of Jiffy Lube Live. Maybe that warning might speak to you as I try to let it speak to me now. Because back on that lawn, with half of my third beer gone and my bladder urging me to get up and go pee, Incubus interrupted my rambling reverie, doing something that approximated singing. The time has come for hand-me-downs. Choose anew. Please evolve. Take flight. What are you waiting for? A written invitation? A public declaration? A private consolation? Who the fuck knows? Whatever it'll be, it's waiting for us in next week's episode, where we'll explore what gets kicked up from our psyche and our world when survival demands stillness. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you'd like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As J.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.